Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. We are delighted that our guest today is the founder of Quillette, Claire Lehman. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hi guys, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. This interview has been a while in the making. We've been trying to make it happen. We're so excited. The time difference is crazy. It's Monday morning as we're recording this where you are. It's Sunday, very late at night here. Uh, so uh, you're just having your coffee. We've had to have some coffee to stay awake. So it's all good. Uh, but so much to talk about. Um, uh, listen, one of the things that we we were really interested to to discuss with you is you talked in some of your previous interviews about the fact that at Quillette, which is a fantastic publication I've written for it a number of times myself, uh, you don't do the kind of, this is what happened today, here's a new story about that. Rather, you take a step back and you look at some of the trends, some of the, the big things that are happening, the big ideas, the big debates, and so on. So as, you, as we sit here in the middle of August 2020, what are some of the big things that you see as having happened and potentially looking forward? What is it that that you kind of are thinking about at the moment? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say that uh, all of the big trends that I was thinking about prior to COVID-19 are all of a sudden accelerating. They're speeding up. So um, there was a brief point in time when the pandemic had just started where I thought that the culture wars would simmer down and <laughs> uh, we'd get over identity politics because people would realise that there's more important things to worry about such as, you know, biomedical health, technology, you know, uh, like real things in the real world such as viruses. Um, but it seems like because everybody's been locked down and cooped up in their homes and they've been spending all of this time on the internet but suddenly the culture wars have accelerated and intensified much greater than what I would have ever expected uh, so all of the culture war trends that I was thinking about prior to 2020 uh, I'm now thinking about them again because they're intensifying and then the other patterns or trends that I find interesting at the moment are the economic ones. So the speeding up of the shift from uh, businesses being sort of like brick and mortar shops on the street to being online businesses and how that's going to affect society and how that's going to affect politics long term. Mm. And, and Claire, were you surprised at the way the, the coronavirus has affected the culture wars? Because I was very much in agreement with you. I thought this is a time humanity is going to pull together. We're all going to hold hands, well, gloves, but, you know, we're all going to hold gloves. We're all going to be in peaceful with one mm -hmm. another. And it just seems that everybody collectively lost their minds. Mm. Well, I, I, I saw some good uh, – th there were some – good signs in Australia. So I live in mm. Sydney, Australia, and at the start of the pandemic, I felt like everybody um, was, you know, th there was a sense of solidarity. So we live in a fair, Australia is a fairly high trust society. We're multicultural, but everyone seems to get along with each other fairly well. And we didn't have the kind of the immediate bickering over 
you know, lockdowns and that kind of thing. We had a lockdown, but everyone seemed to, you know, um, mm -hmm. comply. So we didn't have this immediate bickering that happened maybe in the United States or even in the UK. Um, and we don't have, like, we all wear, when we're on the train, we all wear masks and the mask is not like a, a culture war um, sort of symbol like it is in America. Uh, so in Australia it's a little bit different, but I think as the pandemic keeps going on and people get fatigued and fatigued and worn out, particularly with lockdowns and that kind of thing, um, there'll be more bickering. But what I've noticed is that the stress and the strain of the pandemic has really brought to brought any kind of tensions or fractures within a country out. So obviously in America everything, all of their divisions are much more noticeable now. Um, I don't know exactly what's happening in the UK, but I think in nations that are doing well are fairly, are the ones that have maintained their level of trust. Mm. So Australia, Japan, um, New Zealand potentially. Mm. Mm. Well, well, it's interesting you talk about the UK. I mean, actually, you know, we, we talk about the solidarity. We did have a little bit of that at the beginning. Mm. I thought for the first month or two that was happening. And mm. I think what then happened is, and I, I know you've talked about this in the past as well, in terms of importing stuff uh, from the United States. What mm. then happened is suddenly we had, having gone from like, you know, if you're outside sunbathing, uh, you're criminal and you're, you're mm. killing everyone around you, to the next week, uh, massive riots in the streets, no one socially distancing, and nobody mm. saying a word about that. You know? yeah, that, yeah, the Black Lives Matter protest, is that what you're referring to? Yes. Mm. Yeah, we had one in Melbourne, uh, quite a big one, and one in Sydney where I am. And uh, But I was actually really impressed with our health officials and they came out and said, don't go, and the Prime Minister and uh, other elected members of Parliament said, this is ridiculous, this is an American issue, this is not Australia and don't go on protest. So I was actually really impressed by the the courage. Well, it's, it didn't even require courage. It's just the common sense of our politicians and saying that don't go on protest during a pandemic. Sounds pretty racist to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, you know, we bring up this idea of uh, importing the culture war. How much yeah. do you think that's true? Because... So many of these issues, I mean, us in the UK, over in, in your country, in Australia, they just mm. don't map onto what we've got in our countries at all. And yet we're all having this conversation as if this is like uh, the United States. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a concerning um, trend. It's just I think it's because the United States is the world's global superpower mm. at the moment. And we obviously... You know, we all speak the same language and we import so much of their cultural products from music to entertainment um, and it's just an unfortunate side effect that we have to import their culture war issues as well. But funnily enough, you know, we've never imported their um, evangelical kind of Christian culture wars. Like we don't mm. have, you know, uh, we don't have much division in, in Australia over abortion um, we don't have, you know, uh, protests about gun rights. We have gun control here. So, I mean, on the one hand, we get things like Black Lives Matter being imported here, but on the other hand, we ne they never really 
take root because we have, we've already dealt with many of the issues that the United States has not yet dealt with. So is that in some ways, is that the solution to the, the kind of exporting of the culture war is to get your society sorted out so you're not yeah. there vulnerable to all this crazy stuff? Well, I mean, every nation has its own history, obviously, and, and a culture is intertwined with the nation's history. And it's not so simple as just giving everyone, you know, access to free healthcare or like university. It's not that simple. So like if you take an issue like gun rights in America, I mean, that is intertwined with their nation's founding. Mm. So it's just, it's not, you can't compare the gun rights issue in the United States to Australia because they're, they're so deeply fundamental to that society's cultural beliefs and value system that we just mm. we can't really understand it. So, I mean, it's yeah, it is concerning that we have to deal with this identity politics, which is largely an, an, Ameri an American phenomenon being imported into Australia, but I'm optimistic and confident that our society will never really go down the same path to being so divided over identity as the United States. I mean, it could that could me be me being too hopeful, but we'll mm. see. And do you think part of the reason I think it is being too hopeful, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest <laughs> yeah. with you. Yeah. I, I, I feel those exact What's same thing in the UK though, like it's it's gone pretty crazy. Yeah. Really? And yeah. oh yeah, it's gone Tom Tom. It really, really has. But one of the questions that I wanted to ask is how much of a responsibility do you think social media should bear the brunt for it for this? Because in times gone by, we would never have heard of these cases, or if they would do, it'd only be a footnote in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. But now it just seems to be spread at the touch of the bottom like a virus right around the globe in a matter of seconds. Yeah. Well, any kind of uh, revolutionary technology is going to have disruptive impacts on society and I the way I think of social media and the internet more generally is that it's the equivalent to the printing press mm. um, and so the printing press when it when it was invented it um, brought about the reformation and then hundreds of years of religious warring but at the same time we I mean those things are obviously bad but we wouldn't say to ourselves we don't want to live in a world where the printing press was not invented. So I see the internet as being as being a double-edged sword. It's going to make, uh, it's going to bring about a lot of progress and in terms of technology and bringing very creative, smart people together. At the same time, it's going to disrupt our societies and our political systems to the point where there may even be trauma and bloodshed. But in 100 or 200 years' time, would we turn around and say, oh, we wish the internet was never invented? I don't think so. And I think the same goes for social media. If you think about the world's most brilliant, most creative individuals, linking them up via social media or, or, or by any kind of mechanism, I mean, that has the potential to unleash so much creativity that can benefit humanity in the long term that I think it's worth it. I don't know. And then you go on Twitter and you think, really? <laughs> well, I was thinking, I mean, Twitter is the exact opposite of that, isn't it? Twitter is linking up all the most mentally unstable, <laughs> deluded people <laughs> in one big web, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. But I, I like to think of long term, about the long term. I mean, what 
what if the people who are working on a coronavirus vaccine are linked up mm. via, uh, you know, Twitter? Well, not Twitter, but what if the inf- <laughs> what if the information gets shared much more rapidly than it ever could before, and it means that we can defeat this pandemic? You know, so I just. I think with any technological advancement, we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, um, you know, Colette itself is an internet phenomenon. I could never have established an online magazine without Twitter because that's Mm -hmm. where I met my writers and that's where we distribute our articles for free. Uh, Like I'm not, I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to like send hard copies of my magazine around to all of the cities in the world. But because of the internet and because of Twitter, you know, people in all parts of the world, students can log on for free, read Quillette for free and get what I think is, you know, some pretty good quality content. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to have a balanced view, I think. Absolutely. No, on the one hand, you've got 200 years of religious warfare. Another one, you've got Quillette. There yeah. you go. Balanced. <laughs> Sorry, Francis. Go ahead, mate. No, um, but... Quillette has been such a huge success, and right the right from its inception, its growth has been phenomenal. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I mean, one of the reasons is why we, one of the reasons why is because we have been dealing with. I mean, we've been talking about what we now call cancel culture. Mm. We've been talking about that trend since we started, so that was back in twenty fifteen. So, I mean, now cancel culture has sort of entered into the mainstream lexicon and there's articles about it in mainstream newspapers and magazines. You know, people are discussing how bad it really is and whether it's really a thing. Well, we were talking about these things five years ago. And so uh, I think we've just been ahead of the curve in, in identifying some of the pathologies of identity politics and censorship and the group think that's uh, plaguing institutions such as media, academia, and maybe the arts. So I think we've just been—we were sort of the first movers on that. Um, and then the other, the other reason for our success is, you know, we're not limited by space because publishing on a digital platform doesn't really cost much at all. We can publish quite lengthy essays mm-hmm. where people take a deep dive into issues, sometimes technical issues without without us saying oh you've got to cut you know you've got to um you know cut it down because if you're publishing a newspaper you often are very limited in your space like columnists may only get 600 words everything has to be condensed down and sometimes that means it's dumbed down because we uh we don't have those limitations we allow people more freedom writers more freedom to explore ideas and i mean it's not we don't have our success isn't like mass. We're not successful in a mass media kind of way, but we have a niche. And so we're successful in our niche. And that we're lucky that that niche is big enough around the world to sustain us. And don't you think that is essentially now the future of the internet? Whereas before, where, you know, if you thought about major artists, they had broad appeal. You know, if you thought about major publications, again, they had broad appeal. But very much now with the rise of the internet, it's about identifying a niche and then serving it, which is what you've done beautifully. Yeah. Yes, I think I think that's correct. And, uh, it, I mean, it might not mean that people become household names like they did 
prior to the internet, like um, Madonna and Michael Jackson, like we're not going to have that level of fame and stardom anymore. However, um, we can, lots of people can enjoy um, sustainable incomes uh, just by finding an audience that likes them and they have shared values with and they connect with and and it's very it's a very fulfilling career to have that have a niche audience who you can trust and they trust you and they provide you with an income and you serve their, them i mean it's it's very rewarding and fulfilling and then you don't have all of the downsides that come with you know being super famous like people did in the past and Claire, don't you, don't you think as well that, you know, the success of Quillette and let's be fair, you know, the success of this show and Rogan, doesn't it also highlight the failures of mainstream media in that people are no longer want to engage with it? They don't see it as being trustworthy. They see it as being manipulative and so on and so forth. Yeah, and I think there's a general move away from very slick, highly produced content that people feel is inauthentic. And so, you know, when I was growing up and I was a kid, ev- anything that I saw on TV was very highly produced, very slick, sort of scripted. By uh, this, basically. <laughs> um, you know, people, cra- we're human beings and we crave connection mm. and you connect with other people if they're being themselves, if they're being authentic. So I think, I think there's a real... Audiences around the world are turning towards more authentic, intimate, locally. You know, you can even see it with food. Like you, you'll go to a cafe and, and they'll have signs, locally grown organic. Like there's this, there's this turn away from big mass produced, um, you know, homogenized products towards a niche, local, intimate, authentic. And that's reflected in media just as anything else is just you know just like it is in the food industry or any other industry hi guys and welcome to my brand new gaff some of you will have noticed that it looks incredibly different that's right palacio del passione is no more i got evicted last week so i'm crashing on my friend's floor or as it's otherwise known florio erotico now, we're very excited to have a brand new sponsor. It's ExpressVPN. That's right, ExpressVPN. Catchy name, I know. Now, some of you at the back are wondering, what is ExpressVPN all about? Have you ever been on the internet and looking at things that you don't want people to be knowing about? We all know what I'm talking about, don't we? Yes, that's right. Trigonometry. You don't want people knowing that you're watching and listening to this show and you don't want people to find out about it, understandably. That's where ExpressVPN come in. Now, there'll be some people, probably the gentlemen, who'll be thinking to themselves, hang on, mate, why don't I just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Your internet service provider can still track and find every single website that you use, even when you're doing it with incognito mode. That's why whenever I watch this show, I always make sure to use ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon, Comcast, Sky, whoever it may be, internet service providers are allowed to sell your browsing history to other companies. ExpressVPN is an app 
that reroutes your internet through their secure servers so that your internet service provider can't see all the problematic interview shows that you were watching. I'll be honest with you, most of the time, I didn't even realize I had ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background. You won't even notice it. All you need to do is give it a tap and off it goes. All you have to do to get this amazing offer is use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash trigger. And you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's right, an extra three months free on a one-year package. That is 15 months. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash trigger. You see, teaching kids how to spell for 12 years came in useful one day. And... at what point, because you have a range of thinkers on, you know, so, you know, and you're not like some people say, like they say the same things about us, you're right wing, you're bubble. And you ask them to explain what right wing is. It's essentially a euphemism for hateful and racist, but there we go. But accurate in our case. <laughs> but um, is there ever a point where you go, right, these ideas are simply too much or they, they push too far a particular thing? Like, I think you, and maybe I'm going to misquote you here, please correct me if I'm wrong, you said that you wouldn't put, for example, Mino Yiannopoulos on and have him write for you. At what point do you make that decision where you go, I'm not interested in someone's viewpoint? Yeah, so I'm not really interested in provocation just for provocation's mm. sake. Uh, we, we, we're, not, we're not performance artists. So we, you know, the issues that we explore on Quillette are pretty serious issues and, um, you know, we're not, we're not just into owning the libs or getting a reaction out of people. Uh, Constantine's face. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. I like to own everybody. I have equal opportunity. But it's, it's, not, it's not about politics. It's just about basic human um, standards for behaviour. So I don't. We don't really, uh, we very rarely publish hit, what you would describe as a hit piece. I mean, we have published some articles that uh, bring up shoddy journalism or like correct the record. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes might involve taking a deep dive into a, into a journalist's work or a writer's work. But we don't engage in in the kind of nasty ad hominem attack which is has unfortunately become you know a mainstay of mainstream media for some reason well just Uh, coming back to the mainstream media claire because francis kind of touched on it and you were talking about the fact that people like locally sourced authentic etc do you do you also think there's a big part of it which is less technological and more sort of ideological where increasingly i i can certainly speak for for our country there's increasing perception actually from both sides of the political spectrum that the institutions that we used to take as being these sort of neutral arbiters of the truth mm-hmm. are no longer fulfilling that function at all we see a big defund the bbc movement in this country um the, there is a feeling among many many people that the mainstream media essentially are no longer doing their job do you think that's also been a part of it or do you think that's exaggerated no i think that's definitely a part of it and it's so there's technological forces that are influencing the media but 
they you, I think you're correct you it's right you're right when you say that they have when, when you imply that they have uh, neglected some of their traditional roles um, I it's hard to it's hard to determine what exactly has caused this whether it's the fact that um, the talent that used to the talent that used to go into journalism no longer goes into journalism and you know the 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 smartest kids are now doing something else other than journalism or whether um, there's just been a lack of leadership in institutions themselves. It's really hard to pinpoint what the causal factors are. But Do you, do you not think it's more the kind of long march to the institutions where over the last 30 to 40 years universities have been increasingly churning out people with a particular mindset? those people then go into these professions which attract mostly university graduates. You know, mm -hmm. we had a journalist on the show some time ago, Mike Graham, who was talking about the fact, you know, he's mm -hmm. probably in his 50s, when he was uh, coming up through journalism, lots of people considered it more of a kind of traditional profession as opposed mm -hmm. to something you went into through the academic route. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think maybe the transformation of academia, which is something you've talked about quite a lot, has been a big factor in that? Yeah, certainly it would be a factor. I don't know how big, but it, it, it's right. Um, you're right in that if you're getting a a big chunk of people within a profession who all think the same, they're not going to um, notice each other's blind spots. So if you've got a big chunk of journalists who think that journalism is basically the same as activism, or that activism mm -hmm. somehow has a role to play in journalism, which I don't think it does, uh, they're not going to pick up on each other's blind spots and they're not going to test each other's assumptions, test each, other, test each other's work. I mean, one of the biggest reasons for intellectual di diversity or viewpoint diversity is not because, you know, conservatives or libertarians, just it's nice to have them included. It's to um, make sure good, rigorous, robust work is done because when you have people who have different viewpoints or different ideological perspectives, they pick, up, pick each other's work apart mm -hmm. and find the flaws in it and that creates better work over the long term. But if everyone's thinking the same, you get people get lazy and sloppy and they're not uh, having their, their work thoroughly vetted by their peers the way it should be. So I think that part partly the reason why we've seen a decline in standards in journalism. And you said yourself, Claire, that activism can't be part of journalism. I mean, there are plenty of people at The Guardian who would disagree with you. Uh, yeah. Why do you say that? Also plenty of people are bright by just to be fair yeah. as well. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Good I people mean, on both sides. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's a reference that shouldn't offend anyone. Well done, mate. <laughs> It's not that journalists shouldn't have strong convictions or can't have their own political biases and that kind of thing, but when it comes to the actual work, I mean, journalism is an empirical profession and it's about finding the truth. And so that virtue, finding the truth and documenting empirical facts, has to come before everything else. So I think it's fine if a journalist, you know, puts truth up here and they're, their political biases down here. Fine with me. That's pretty much what we do at Colette anyway. But it, when it, that reverses, when the political, when a journalist's political goals 
are more important to them than finding the truth, that's mm. a problem. And because that, then it's no longer journalism. Mm. But don't you think, Claire, we've reached this stage where practically every publication now ha is advocacy journalism? It's almost impossible to find a publication which actually is, is objective anymore. Yeah, I think it's hard to find um, publications according to Masthead alone, but I think that if we look hard enough, we'll find that there still are journalists with integrity, uh, but they're individuals. So it's it's hard to pinpoint a a particular publication as a whole, mm. um, but there will be many individuals working within newspapers who are still who still can, um, who, who still subscribe to the more traditional uh, understanding of what journalism is. Well, except some of them are now leaving the very institutions which they've they've been in. The Barry Weisses, the Andrew Sullivans, mm. the uh, a lot of people are. Who, who you would hope would be the kind of center and the core of their institutions are actually feeling like they can't exist in those spaces anymore, which again, I suppose, explains the success of, of, of publications like Quillette. Um, mm. Do you think that we, we might have entered a slightly different age, although I think you, Quillette is a counterexample to what I'm about to say, but uh, certainly on, on YouTube, people who do what we do, which essentially like we say, well, I say I'm a centrist, Francis is old school lefty we tell people what we think we tell people where we're coming from and then we have a conversation from that space mm. uh that's um that's that seems to be like a totally different shift where essentially we're not pretending to be unbiased mm. right uh whereas the problem with a lot of the mainstream stuff is they're saying well this is just the objective reality we've got no bias at all here's a story about how you know dancing is racist or something you know mm. like yeah um, do, do you think that's that's part of the shift as well is now we're kind of looking for people to go, this is who I am, this is where I'm coming from, and mm. here's what I think because of that? Yeah, I think that's a valid point. But, I mean, you guys are having conversations and a lot of the stuff that I publish on Colette is uh, opinion. Mm. And when you're expressing your opinion, it helps to have some self-awareness and it helps <laughs> to be upfront mm. about your political biases. But... What I'm talking about in terms of putting the truth first, I'm talking about if you're a reporter and you're going out and observing an event like a, a, a protest, if you come back and write, it, write a story about how it was mostly peaceful because <laughs> <laughs> only 24 cops got assaulted, you know, that's when, you, that's when things are getting, the lines are getting a bit blurred between activism and bias and reporting on what actually happened. And it's just my view that if your job is that you're a reporter, you have to report the facts clearly and, uh, you know, you should try and minimise bias as much as possible. It's the same with science. I mean, if scientists are allowed to have their political biases, that's fine. But if they let the, those biases impact the results that they find from an experiment, then the whole process is corrupted and then we no longer have trust in the scientific enterprise and then, and that's incredibly damaging long term but isn't part of the problem as well that you know you may want to you may go into these institutions and you may want to be objective and you may want to report on the facts but ultimately if the hierarchy and the people above you aren't interested in that then you're gonna you're doomed to failure aren't you yeah i mean of course incentives matter and uh you know it, it 
like I, I think I mentioned before, potentially in some of these institutions, the leadership is cul- culpable. The leadership mm. has really been strong enough to withstand some of these corrosive forces. Uh, yeah, I think it would be tremendously difficult for any junior journalist in the ABC or the BBC or wherever who has a more traditional view of journalism going in and having to navigate all of the internal politics of these organisations, particularly when leadership might be very biased or have a different understanding of what journalism journalism means. All right. Well, we've bashed the evil MSM <laughs> enough, I feel, for, for one episode. Um, look, one of the fascinating things about Quillette is you get a lot of people from the scientific world to write about um, a lot of the things that are, have become invariably part of the culture war you know, gender differences between men and women, uh, you know, IQ research, all that sort of stuff. So what what have been and what will be some of the most important kind of scientific things that Quillette has covered and will cover uh, in relation to, you know, some of those those things like uh, the stuff that we talk about on the show? Uh, well, I think it's certainly our coverage of sex differences has been uh, quite influential. I think... Um, we were the first publication to really uh, commission and solicit articles and commentary from uh, evolutionary psychologists and even neuroscientists who are ex- like world-leading experts in this area. And I, I've seen articles that look, you know, quite similar to our own articles end up on place at places like the Atlantic. So I think. We've been a leader in that area. I think intelligence research is certainly, um, we've, you know, we've certainly contributed to that, uh, to more understanding perhaps among intellectuals about mm. in- intelligence research, but it's still such a taboo scientific area. I, I don't see that uh, the science in that area becoming mainstream anytime soon or, or, or understood at a mainstream level. I think... Uh, I think sex differences is used to be quite taboo and it would you, scientists have had to be really brave to even discuss it without uh, because they they feared being called sexist but I think that's broken down over the last five or ten years and um, and now people can discuss sex differences uh, quite openly perhaps not at Google but in <laughs> other <laughs> in other places people can talk about them. I think it'll take uh, a bit longer for intelligence research. It's still really taboo and, and people are still really uncomfortable talking about it. So, um, It's interesting that you say that because I didn't realize, you, you know, you said it, I, I, intelligence research is a taboo subject and I assumed you were talking about the, the race and IQ. So are you saying that like research which finds that different people have different IQs and that's somehow related to their genetics, is that taboo? Uh, I would say that the any research that finds that there is a genetic component to intelligence is taboo. But the any isn't that a statement of the bleeding obvious though that we you know we have a lot outside of academia. (laughs) (laughs) So people outside of academia have a lot more sense about this than than within academia, in a way. Academia, it's it's very tricky to argue that any any form of human behaviour. I mean, we know that fifty uh, percent of psychological traits are heritable. 
We know that from 30 years of behavioural genetic studies. But you won't find very many academics willing to say that publicly, particularly in psychology. It's fraught. It's absolutely fraught, particularly around socially valued traits such as intelligence. And why is this? I mean, because, you know, I'm a former teacher. Everybody can now drink. Sorry, that's that's a game we play. Constant mention is Russian. I'm a former teacher. But you yeah. could see that, you know, if, if – if a child had bright parents or parents, you know, who had, you know, good jobs or whatever else, they were more likely to be academically capable. That just seems obvious in that if you have two parents who are sporty, the kid's probably going to be sporty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Why is a common sense idea, which everybody accepts in the real world, why is that taboo in academia? Well, I mean, people have been trying to understand that for a long time now. There's this famous book by Steven Pinker called The Blank Slate that was written mm. back in 2002 and he tried to explore all of the reasons why we find it hard or that, or not everybody but the intellectual class of society, why we find it so difficult to deal with human nature and the heritable nature of human nature. Sorry, that's a, a mouthful but... <laughs> Um, and there are there are various reasons, but a big one is simply that um, a, there are narratives or assumptions, particularly within progressive political ide ideology, that frown upon acknowledging that we are born with a human nature because it's seen as being uh, incompatible with an, this notion that if you create beautiful environments for everyone people can flourish naturally mm. so i think i think it's seen as an impediment to um good politics basically so if you if you acknowledge that some kids will always struggle in school mm. then um th i think there's this fear that suddenly you won't pour money into schools or something like that i mean there's a, you have to take a few steps to try and understand where this fear comes from but it's, a, it's been a huge part of our culture for some time now that we haven't been able to honestly deal with the fact that people differ individually and as groups. And, uh, you know, I think some of the culture wars uh, issues are the result of that. And do you think, Claire, as well, it's, you know, and you have children and, we, and you know, we, we give children this narrative that you can be anything you want. You can do anything you want. All you need to do is put your head down, work hard enough, and the world is your oyster. When the reality is, when we're talking about IQ, is there's some children, unfortunately, are never going to be capable of being a doctor or, you know, being, being a scientist. They're simply not intelligent enough. And that is brutal and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And if you say to these people right at the start that because of your IQ is simply never going to achieve this, isn't isn't that an, an awful message to send to people, however accurate it might be? Well, you know, I'm never going to be, uh, I'm never going to win the hundred meters sprint, you know, race. You're white. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of things that we can't all do. Mm. I think one thing that we've lost, however is this a notion that all human beings are have the same moral worth and the same inherent dignity. And I think intelligence is a really thorny and tricky subject because we so often uh, mistake, uh, we so often confuse intelligence with human worth, and that's really bad. I mean, we should be able to separate 
um, that a person's ability to perform in our modern economy from their inherent worth. You know, a person can be kind, funny, warm, loving, caring without being particularly bright, you know, and we shouldn't judge, you know, at, we, we, tie, we put too much emphasis and value on intelligence rather than those other qualities such as kindness and funniness and, you know, and, 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 the, and uh, bravery, those types of human qualities that I think we used to value more in our society but we've sort of lost well, actually, I think it goes deeper than that, perhaps, Claire, as well, which which is that rather than looking at an alternative source of value, we might want to look at one of the breakthroughs of Western civilization is that everybody has value irrespective. Everybody is valuable irrespective of their qualities or values. In other words, the three of us have different intelligence. We have different attractiveness. We have different this and that. And, and maybe one of us is morally good and one of us isn't, right? I point at myself as I say that, of <laughs> course. Uh, but, but, but nonetheless, we're all human beings and that means we have moral value and we have inalienable, inalienable rights that are protected by the state from others. That, that was actually quite a revolutionary idea when, when it became part of our civilization. Um, and, and th that fear of, of, seeing that people are different it reminds me and i know you've talked about this as well as how you first encountered the sort of uh bl almost blacklisting by australian media when you wanted to be critical of aspects of feminism mm. and it seems to me like that issue is very strong with liberal feminism where it's like we have to pretend that men and women are the same because if they're not we can't achieve equality which seems like a crazy idea yeah yeah, I, yeah, that's right. There's this uh, notion that if you're different, you are not equal, mm -hmm. and it's there's a confusion between moral equality and empirical equality. Uh, you know, we're never going to be equal empirically. We're never going to be. I'm never going to be able to run the hundred meters as fast as Usain Bolt. Uh, but that doesn't mean I should. I shouldn't be considered equally human and have equal human worth um so we you know we, we we've we our culture seems to have lost this understanding that equality is meant to be a moral aim and a moral goal it's about equal human worth and dignity uh and we're focusing way too much on empirical equality and i don't really know how to wind that back or get the conversation back on track to moral equality but it's something that we have to do if we're going to make any progress in these really thorny topics. And the thing is, these thorny topics are essential uh, for resolving some of these culture war issues. I mean, some of the arguments that people are having are completely divorced from facts and from empirical reality. So we, we really need to talk about what we know as empirical facts before we can solve any of these political issues. So... We need to have these honest conversations. And Claire, do you think part of the problem is as well, like you said, that we don't fight, we don't value, you know, honesty, kindness, bravery, and and you know, I agree with you that we don't. But isn't it part of the problem? And I'm going to say this with my left wing head on: is that you can't monetize that. Yeah. And because you can't monetize it, it's therefore not seen as a value. Whereas you know, if you're great at put, you know, programming or coding. You know, or any of these things that come with having a high IQ, you can monetize it, make a lot of money, and therefore you have value. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that's something I wish we could talk about more. I mean, women, for example, on average are more empathetic and more highly agreeable, right? But you can't mm. scale those qualities. You can't scale up empathy like you can uh, being a fantastic coder. Like if you if you look at tech billionaires, I mean, they've some of them have just invented a snippet of code, and and but that has allowed them to you know monet you know that their the ability of them to monetize that is just astronomical. You can't mm. monetize. You know, if you're an extremely caring nurse who heals people in the hospital, or if you're an amazing nanny who looks after people's children, you can't scale that up. But the work that you do as a human being and even the work that you do within the modern economy is so important and so vital and so beneficial mm. to other people mm. that we could not go without it, but it's not scalable. And so mm. I wish we talked about that more uh, because it, I, I do think certain skill sets are incredibly valuable and fundamental to our species, but they're not valued enough or they're undervalued simply because they're not as monetizable. And when you say that we should talk about it more, do you feel like there's a solution that's there to, to change that somehow? Well, I mean, one way to compensate people for having a skill set or doing work which is not, doesn't, you know, make them rich is just by affording them prestige, you know. Mm. So if we, if, if, um, if, you know, carers of elderly people in aged care homes were afforded more prestige, like I'm sure that they would feel better about the important work that they, they do, you know. I just think that just because something uh, can, is easily monetizable or can make a great deal of money, um, you know, th that has rewards in itself, but there are other ways to compensate people for the work that they do, particularly if it's very important, vital work to our society. Oh. Prestige, um, those things. I mean, it's very, very interesting that you say that, that we should bring, you know, that we should bring prestige. It's, do you sometimes think as well, it's, it's just the incentives that are wrong in our society. And because, you know, if you have a high IQ, you naturally think to yourself, right, well, what is ultimately going to make me successful? <laughs> is it going to be being more empathetic, being more kind, being more caring? Or is it actually going to mean that I'm going to be more hyper-focused, I'm going to be more, you know, driven, all the rest of it? That is going to take me to where I need to be. Mm. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I hesitate to say that the incentives in our society are wrong, but I think we can do a better job at... Um, at, at providing people with other rewards rather than mm. just uh, economic. And, and and there needs to be more of a uh, awareness that, I mean, you know, people do jobs not necessarily because of the money. People do jobs mm. because they find it fulfilling and rewarding and, and that sort of thing. Mm. You know, there are other there are lots of ways to make a lot of money, but they're not necessarily good for the soul. But I think if we She's talking about you bankers, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think if we were just, you know, if the if the conversation was just broader and some of these issues were, um, you know, we we talked about them a bit more freely and honestly, that would be that would be better. But I mean, I don't I don't think everyone just 
calculates how much money they can earn just you know through a particular job and 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 only chooses that job i think we we choose the job that we do for a range of different reasons and i think most people intuitively understand that i guess what you're talking about is a little bit like uh having a high regard for people in armed services which used to be much more the case than it is now like you know not necessarily well paid but held in very high esteem yeah. But exactly. in, many, in many societies. So I suppose uh, re- rerouting that to, uh, you know, as you talk about doctors and, and nurses and so on, or mm-hmm. having more of that. Um, yeah, I, I, that's an interesting conversation. I just I, I wonder how you how you engineer that socially. Um, well, I don't think well, I don't think you can. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think we, you can from a top down point of view. You can't you can't you can't organize that by fiat. It has to come from the grassroots and it has to come organically. But I think we used to do a better job, particularly for women. I think, for example, mothers were more highly regarded mm. a few mm. generations ago. And, uh, you know, it's sad that that I, – I just think it's sad that some of that has been lost. And, Claire, you know, we, we talk about intelligence and we had Noah Carl on the show. And Noah was saying that there's really – and maybe I'm misquoting him – I'm. I hope not. But essentially, there's only one real type of intelligence. Whereas when I was in teacher training college, they said there were multiple types of intelligence. There was also emotional intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. We all know that person who could ace maths exams. And then when it comes to a human connection interaction, they'd fall apart. Where do you stand on this? Well, I mean, I from so I study psychology at university Mm. and um, I would have learned the same things that Noah has learned, although his education is probably more recent than mine. But, yeah, I think there's only one type of gen- general intelligence, but I would qualify that in saying that uh, a person can have – there are different cognitive profiles. So uh, some, particularly when it comes to people on the right-hand side of the bell curve, so if you're getting into the gifted areas – People can be gifted in very different ways. Mm. Um, and I think Jordan Peterson has spoken about this as well. So if you if you if you suspect a child or an adult is gifted, they might be gifted in just one area and then have average abilities in other areas. Uh, or they might have just very uh, spiky profiles. I think this turns up in people who have Asperger's. They have what's called a spiky profile. So they're very they have high scores maybe on arithmetic or some other, you know, subset of um, an intelligence scale and then lower scores on others. So I think, uh, I mean, so I so I think both views are right. It's, it's not correct to say there are different types of intelligence, but simply that when we test people, people can have uh, different cognitive profiles and particularly when we're getting into the gifted areas people can have very divergent kind of results um and that's it's not unusual but one when we're getting into the left hand side of the bell curve when people are struggling with an intelligence test they, they the the profiles are more similar so that i mean that i don't i don't know the reason for that but that's that's uh, i think that's a general finding and do you not worry that i mean that these sort of tests could be misused, you know, like companies or whatever else, or, you know, if you want to move to another country, they'll say, right, if anything below like a one, two, eight IQ score and you're not moving in, could that eventually be a possibility? 
Francis, don't worry, I'll never fire you, mate. <laughs> well, I mean, they could be they could be misused, but I think there's a lot of I mean I, one thing that I mean, it could also save people a lot of time and money if they were used. Like if you didn't have to go to university and get a four-year degree just to prove that you're moderately intelligent and you could just do a test, I mean, that would save you four years of your life and a whole lot of money and then you could get a professional job and they could train you up in the job while paying you. Like I think, I think yes, there is potential for tests to be misused but also... Um, it could be a really cheap way to, uh, you know, give people a, a opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't get. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't see it as being that simple. Like, and, and the other thing about intelligence testing is it's one of the only ways that smart kids from poor disadvantaged backgrounds uh, have been able to, um, to really not intelligence tests, but having having standardised tests in education settings has been one of the, the best ways to enhance social mobility. So I think there's, there's, yeah, there's obviously situations where the test could be misused and people could be treated unethically because of it, but same goes the other way. Makes sense. Claire, uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And as always, we have uh, one final question for you, which is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Well, uh, how great trigger pot is. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely important, but uh, increasingly people are talking about it. So what, have you have you got another one for us? Well, I think I, think I mentioned them earlier. I think that um, uh, other rewards for jobs that aren't economically rewarded such as nannying and aged care work and that kind of thing. I think we should talk about that more. And uh, also we should talk about the costs involved in not um, acknowledging that we differ as individuals and as groups. So the high cost of denying human nature. Claire, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find you online, if they want to find Quillette, what do they need to do? Well, uh, go to quillette.com, that's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E.com, and you can support us uh, via Patreon, so Quillette at Patreon. Uh, we have a podcast as well, so you can find us uh, in your podcatchers if you look for Quillette, and you can subscribe to our newsletter, so you should be able to find a, a, a subscription button on our newsletter, and you can follow us on Twitter and instagram so yeah perfect uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show claire it's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you and if yeah. you've enjoyed the show we will see you. well actually even if you haven't enjoyed the show we'll still see you uh tomorrow with another uh, live stream and very soon with another brilliant episode so take care and enjoy the rest of your day Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.